Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Conference, and I am seated with Joanne Bruna, Assistant Professor at the Curran Institute at NYU and also at the Center of Data Science at NYU, and Michael Bronstein, who is currently on sabbatical at Harvard. Joanne and Michael, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. Why don't we get started by having each of you introduce yourselves and tell us a little bit about how you got involved in machine learning and artificial intelligence? Yeah, so I, I did my master's and my PhD in France. And actually, at the beginning, my, my training was more on the signal processing and applied math. And I was not so much into machine learning up until I started to, to mutate during my PhD and enter machine learning through the, let's say, through, through the ideas and, and tools from signal processing. And so that was five years ago. And ever since, I've been getting more and more interested in ways and problems in which we can maybe leverage some of the more uh, techniques and, and ways of basic mathematical tools from applied math into some of the current modern problems in deep learning. Yeah, that's kind of how I arrived here. Awesome. And Michael? So I did my studies in Israel at the Technion, and my main background is in geometry, so different types of geometry, metric geometry, spectral geometry, mostly in applications to computer vision and computer graphics problems. And in recent years, well, probably with the, like many other people, I wouldn't say everybody, basically following a little bit the hype of deep learning, we are trying <laughs> to apply some of deep learning methods to geometric data, with, which comes with many of its challenges. That are, there are many similarities and many dissimilarities from the more traditional Euclidean, so to say, data. Okay. And I mentioned you're on sabbatical at Harvard. Where are you otherwise affiliated? So otherwise, I spend most of my time between Switzerland and Israel, full professor at the University of Lugano in Switzerland, Tel Aviv University in Israel, and I also have a position as a principal engineer at Intel Perceptual Perceptual Computing. You sound like a very busy guy. (laughs) Well, (laughs) don't tell to my wife. (laughs) The two of you delivered a tutorial. Was it today, right? Yes. You did a tutorial. Tell us a little bit about the tutorial you did. Okay, so so the tutorial is called Geometric Deep, Deep Learning on Graphs and Manifolds. Okay. And so the in one sentence, the goal of what the, what the tutorial is about is how can we leverage the successful techniques that the deep learning developed to process images, text, and speech into data and tasks where you might have where your your input might be a bit more exotic, for example, proteins, or it could be data from a social network, or it could be data captured from a let's say a Kinect, where you have a bunch of uh, point clouds in, in in 3D. And so what the tutorial is trying to do is to say, basically give a picture of our current understanding of how deep learning models can be used and developed in this regime, and also try to describe some of the future and current open directions. Mm. And Michael, in your introduction, you drew one of the key distinctions here, which is Euclidean space versus other geometric spaces. Can you elaborate on on that distinction? Sure. So basically the difference between Euclidean and non-Euclidean data 
one of the main differences is that you don't have the possibility of vector space operations. So in Euclidean space, you can take your sample, your, your point, and you can add or subtract two points. You cannot do the same thing on a graph, for example. You cannot add or subtract two vertices on a graph. So basically, you have more general structures, but also less operations that you do you can do with these structures. So you need to reinvent many of the building blocks that, that basically, such as convolutions or pooling, or that are commonly used in, in, in deep learning architectures when you need to deal with these data. Mm. So Zuan, why don't you walk us through the general structure of the tutorial? How did you set the context? How did you get started? Well, I mean, historically, yeah, so, so there's a, a little clique of researchers that we started to look into this problem a few years ago, maybe like three, four years ago. So that was at the time where I was a postdoc in Jan Lekun's lab in, uh, in, in New York, uh, back as my time as a postdoc. So there we, and together with Arthur Slam, who is another organizer of the tutorial, we came up with a very simple, I would say, first model that was trying to set up the techniques that later on we realized, and Michael and his group also helped us understand, that they were far too naive, right? That there were a lot of things that, that could be improved upon this first idea. So I guess that since the very beginning, we kind of saw that there was a very interesting exchange of ideas and also leveraging the fact that we came from slightly different backgrounds, right? Michael's group, they have a, a lot of expertise in geometry and understanding manifolds. And we came up with an expertise maybe where we had been working hands-on with convolutional neural networks and some of the ideas that I also worked on during my PhD that involve more the harmonic analysis of these convolutional neural networks. And so the tutorial came quite naturally. We have been uh, also collaborating in, you know, in a variety of, of different projects. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's how it came up. So for us, basically, the, the paper that Juan mentioned that he authored as a postdoc was actually an inspiration. And that's where we started looking into these kind of problems. So we've been working, of course, on spectral geometry for a long time. And in computer graphics geometry processing community, these or similar ideas have been around for a while. But basically combining it with learning and redefining operations, for example, in the spectral domain, as they did in their influential paper, was to some extent eye-opening. And basically, we took it from there. So we wrote together a review paper that appeared in IEEE Signal Processing Magazine just this summer. Mm -hmm. That for us, it was also doing some homework. We discovered many works in other communities that existed for quite some time or maybe were almost forgotten or not given sufficient attention. And maybe even in different communities, people calling the same things with different names or to some extent even I wouldn't, I would dare say reinventing approaches just without probably being aware of what is done in, in other communities. So That somehow, never happens. What do you mean? <laughs> well, of course, it, it, it always happens. But in this, in this domain, because it's, it's a new it's a new field. We can probably already call it a new field or a new trend or a new niche in machine learning. And because it's it's new, then basically it's it's an effort of there are several seeds that exist in, in, in other domains and I think now they people start getting maybe somehow a, a uniform picture of what exists and what what's the relation between different methods. So I think the, the tutorial is very timely. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned spectral analysis. When I think of that, I think of things like fast Fourier transforms and the like. How does that fit into graphs and manifolds and non-Euclidean spaces and so all these things? One way you could think about it is that it's 
it's like your dictionary, right? So, 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 and we should probably even take a step back and explain what an FFT is for folks who might not be familiar with yes. that. Yeah, so maybe if we take a step sufficiently back, we can maybe start with physics, right? So, okay. so, uh, <laughs> so yeah, so, so there's a, a very fundamental equation in physics that governs how things oscillate, right? But like in a guitar or, you know, in a domain. So like if you take, you know, like a, a drum and, and you hit it, there's some, some equation that is going to determine how things are going to oscillate. And so the modes of oscillation, as you, as you might suspect, they are related to the Fourier analysis, right? So, so the, and, and the equation that, and the operator that uh, governs this, this behavior is called Laplacian, right? So, so the Laplacian is the, the mathematic, it's a mathematical, it's a differential operator that in the Euclidean domain might look very inoffensive, right? It's just uh, you take the partial derivatives with respect to all directions and you just sum everything. But it turns out that, that from this operator, you can use this as a vehicle to generalize things, right? Because now, if you want to generalize convolutions from the Euclidean domain to a non-Euclidean domain, you will have a hard time, right? Because they are defined through something that doesn't exist in the non-domain. But if you, if you take one step back and they say, okay, maybe I cannot directly use the convolution, but maybe I can step back and, and use the, this Laplacian operator as a tool to maybe go from one world to the other. And as it turns out, the Laplacian is, a, is an operator that is intrinsically defined with very weak assumptions. In, in, what it means is that even on a, on a graph or on a manifold, it's an operator that, that exists and it's well, it's, it has a very complete and rich structure and status. And these, the application of the Laplacian to these different domains, this is all work that you know, was done with regard to that domain, independent of what we're trying to do here with machine learning. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that, I mean, I, I would not claim that I know exactly when these things, but I'm sure that many famous physicists from even like the 19th century were aware of, you know, the, the existence and the generality of this operator, mm-hmm. right? And this is why I think, I believe that when people refer to spectral graph theory, mm-hmm. it's most of it or, or a big part of it is in developing the properties of Laplacian and related operators in graphs. As applied to graphs? Yes. Okay. And so... So in that respect, the Fourier transform is now a, a concept that you can, of course, if, if you analyze it in the Euclidean domain, it has a very, again, a very rich structure and it's useful beyond our imagination, right? It can be used to do fast, mostly thanks to the fast Fourier transform. But it's also an object that exists in general graphs, perhaps not with the only detail that is like a single detail, but might be very important, is that it doesn't come with a fast algorithm, right? That's the... I would say that, that this is the main, or one of the main technical differences. Hmm. So when I think of the, the Fourier transform or the FFT, I think of some, you have some input signal and you pass it through this Fourier transformation and it basically decomposes it into its frequency parts. How does that apply to a graph? What does that even mean? So on a graph, basically, in the Euclidean case, you can, as you said, you can represent a function or a signal as a superposition of sines or cosines, right? Basically, some harmonic functions. So these functions turn to be eigenfunctions or eigenvectors of the Laplacian operator. In the Euclidean case, in the one-dimensional case, it's just the second-order derivative. So basically, if you replace this Euclidean Laplacian with a non-Euclidean Laplacian, with, with a graph Laplacian, or on a manifold, that would be what is called the differential geometry, the plus Beltrami operator, Basically, you get exactly the same thing. You you get eigenfunctions of these of this operator that turn to be an orthogonal basis. Basically, it's a self-adjoint operator, so it has uh, orthogonal eigen decomposition. The eigenvalues play a role of frequencies. 
that are exactly as John mentioned, vibration modes of uh, yeah, basically the the, the eigenvalues uh, that you uh, obtain in the helpholds or the the spatial part of the wave equation that governs vibrations of of a domain. John, you were saying no, no. It's just that maybe one way where you can maybe picture this thing in your head is yeah, if if you take like a spherical plate that would correspond to a drum as we understand it, right? It's the drum, and then you could you could uh, imagine like deforming somehow the drum and just playing it, you would intrinsically, you would still be playing things that can be seen as a superposition of like fundamental waves that would look a bit more funny, right? That, that would probably adapt and there would be like deformations of the original sines and cosines depending on how you have deformed the, the original drums. Mm-hmm. Interesting. This is interesting stuff. It's bringing me back to my DSP class in grad school. <laughs> and I don't think eigenvalues and eigenvectors has really come up much on the, the podcast either, but we're not going to go into the linear algebra. We'll assume, we'll assume a bunch of that. So basically, just to, to kind of to catch us up, this is all kind of background to the tutorial. Maybe let's take a moment to talk about applications of of this to make it a little bit more concrete for everyone. How how is the, some of the stuff that you're doing applied? So maybe yeah, we can illustrate a couple of very different applications. So one that I'm personally involved in is particle physics. Okay, so the sort of experiments that people do in in a large collider and like in particle accelerators, right? Where where there the the goal of the game is to say very precise things about how the standard model, like some very specific properties of the standard model. So the way it works is that you have a, you do a, like a very, an experiment where you clash two particles, certain, you know, with very, very large speed, and then they produce what they call a jet. And a jet is, a, is like a shower of little events that can be detected through a very expensive and very sophisticated detector that looks like a cylinder. Mm-hmm. So, and the goal of the game is to say, well, given this observation that looks like this point cloud in my detector, how can I infer what was the underlying physical theory, right? And so mm-hmm. It, mm-hmm. it's really a machine learning, and, and their machine learning is a very, very fundamental step for this experimental physicist. And so there, you use this, the techniques that we described in the tutorial to essentially learn a data-driven model that looks as input a set of, like a point cloud in, as modeled in the color limiter and tries to predict if it was due to theory A or theory B. Mm-hmm. And before we go to the other application, when I think about when I visualize this, I'm visualizing, you know, something that, you know, is very well within the bounds of Euclidean stuff, right? It's a three-dimensional point cloud. Like, why do we need to apply the stuff that you've done as opposed to the usual yeah, stuff? A very good question. So the answer is that you're not forced to apply what, what, what we do. So if you decide to stay in the Euclidean route, you would have to somehow quantify your your measurements such that they look like a regular grid. And so with that, there are two potential risks. The first one is that if the precision that you need, if the, you know, like the little blobs that the particles create are very small, you might need to sample at a, you know, as you would need a sampling rate that will make inputs incredibly large, right? That, that, that you will, you will basically be paying a huge price in order to, to transform your input into something that is in a regular grid. Maybe another way to put that is in order to solve this in Euclidean space, you have like a quantization noise that you have to sample more than otherwise if you were to use a different... Correct. So, so, so there's a trade-off, right? Between, so, so once you choose a, a quantization step, 
there's a trade-off between how large and how sparse your input is going to look like versus how much resolution you are going to lose. So in that respect, the models that we propose here, they are an alternative that don't have this limitation, right? That, that can stay at the native, let's say, they, they don't lose any information because we don't need to quantize, we don't need to go into this regular grid. And I would say that there's another potential advantage is that when you look at, your, at the experiment that comes from a detector as if it was an image, right, in a, in a regular grid, the underlying assumption is that the statistics, you know, the statistics of the input, mm. they are following the same assumptions as the statistics of natural images, namely that everything is stationary and that there's a, I would say, a canonical way to compare, or like to measure distance between points. Right. Whereas in the physicists, they have a very good, a very good and, and sophisticated notions of how one should be comparing particles. Okay, so there's a, in other words, there's a more physics-aware version of a neural network. That, I mean, another word, another way to say it is that for physicists, it's very important to have a model where you can infuse and you can incorporate like prior information about how things should be compared into mm-hmm. the model. And so the the, the graph formulation that we are, that we are working on is, is allowing you to incorporate this thing into the model. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you use just a quantization and a standard convolutional neural network, it doesn't seem so easy to incorporate and to, to accommodate for this. Okay. So when I, when I go from my picture of the three-dimensional Euclidean for this application to maybe something that's a little bit less traditional, I think of like maybe looking at your points in some kind of spherical coordinate system. Is that kind of, is that what you're doing or is it, because we keep coming back to graph and I'm trying to wrap my head around where graph. Yes. So here the, the, the graph enters the game as just a, a like a data structure that you okay. use to relate particles. Okay. So think that your input is discrete. It contains a, a number of particles that can be variable depending on each event. Mm. And what you learn is a, is a network that learns how to relate, how to relate and propagate information across the, the set of particles. And so it doesn't see it into this extrinsic Euclidean space. So, so of course, you could right, say, well, right. you know, it's just, a, I mean, yeah, I can, look, I can see my input as being n particles, but I can also see it as, a, you know, as you say, just put everything in a sphere. And then I just see it as a function, like as an image in that sphere, right? And then the number, the notion that I have n particles completely disappears, right? And then you can connect everything with everything. I would say that it, it's not that there's one approach that is systematically better than the other. It's really there's context in which you might want to use one formulation versus the other. So what, what I see here is that we are just providing another tool that now our practitioners can use and maybe then they can combine with the other one. And we also have reasons to believe that in some contexts, one formulation might scale better than the other. For example, if instead of having a moment, moment of four dimensions, I had momenta of, you know, like eight dimensions. Mm-hmm. Well, in our case, the architectural changes to the, to the model, model would be minimal, right? There's nothing in our scaling that depends on the, or like it depends very weakly on the dimension of the input. Whereas if you had to do the, the quantization on the domain, you would pay a huge price for this small change. Mm. Interesting. So you are going to give a second example? I can give a second example or Michael can give an example as you prefer. Uh, Michael, why don't you give one? Yeah, so I can give as an example a paper that actually we'll be presenting tomorrow here at NIPS. Okay. And the example is recommender systems. So okay. you know, probably the most famous example is the Netflix problem. You know, that Netflix is, is a movie rental company and 
they have probably tens of millions of users and probably hundreds of thousands of different movies. So the users can give different scores to movies, whether they like the movie or not, let's say on a scale between zero and, and nine. So basically, you, get, uh, you can describe this uh, information as a huge matrix that is very sparsely sampled because, of course, even if you watch continuously the movies throughout your entire lifetime, you'll probably watch just a small percentage of what they have. So they want to fill in the missing entries of this huge matrix, basically. Mm-hmm. They try to interpolate it. And the standard approach is use algebraic techniques, basically. You try to fit a low-dimensional model to these data, minimizing the matrix rank or, more correctly, the... the basically the convex proxy of the rank, the, what, the so-called nuclear norm. So this problem formulation doesn't have any geometric structure, for example. You can shuffle the, the columns and the, the, the rows of the matrix, or if you remove one of the columns, there are infinitely many ways you can fill it in. So if you have some either side information or you can construct it from the data, some notion of affinity between users or items, or actually both, that you can represent as a graph, for example. So think of a social network and maybe a little bit naive model that friends have similar tastes. Right. So this already allows you to think of the matrix as some kind of space with with geometric structure. You can talk about notions like smoothness. So basically, you can say that the values in this matrix vary significantly or insignificantly when you go from one vertex on the graph to another vertex on the graph. And you can actually learn optimal filters, spectral filters, for example, on this graph. Actually, it's a product of two graphs. So you can the best analogy from single processing will be a two-dimensional Fourier transform, like Fourier transform of an image. Two-dimensional, okay. Okay, two-dimensional Fourier transform. Yeah. Okay. So think of an, the Fourier transform of an image, right? You apply Fourier transform to the columns and rows of the image. So here, instead of Euclidean-structured rows and columns, you have matrix that lives on two different graphs, right? So basically, the rows, for example, represent items or movies, and the columns represent users. So these are two different graphs. Mm-hmm. And you can apply filters in this frequency domain that is now basically characterized by the eigenvalues of the two locations of the rows and the column and the column graphs. And basically this way you can have a better way of filling in the missing elements of the matrix that accounts for the similarities between different users and movies. How specifically does the frequency domain, the Fourier transform, tie into the graph itself and in, 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 in this context? So it's very similar to what Joan described before. Basically, the spectral definition of convolution, right? You can do convolution in the in the spectral domain, right? The classical convolution, this is what we call the convolution theorem in signal processing, that you can implement filtering or convolution in the frequency domain just by as a product, point-wise product of Fourier transforms, right? And mm-hmm. this is what we usually do in standard signal processing because we can efficiently compute the, the Fourier transform using FFT. And you, you can do the same thing for images, right? You can do two-dimensional filters in, in the frequency domain. So basically extend this analogy to matrix data. Basically, you can think of it as an image, but the domains where the rows and the columns of this image live, they, they have graph structure instead mm-hmm. of standard Euclidean structure. Hmm. If someone has a problem where they, you know, they've got you know, some set or sets of entities that have some inherent structure one relative to the other as opposed to you know some of the more traditional you know image you know an image or you know other data types that's an area where they could be looking at an approach like this and it might give them some advantage absolutely yeah so so you mentioned yeah that a setting that it, that is now approached and defined through different names so so now there's something that is becoming very popular recently it's called the meta learning right where mm-hmm. where it's this idea that maybe rather than using a traditional supervised learning, 
where I have very few number of samples and then very few number of labels and then the, the environment is non-stationary so it's changes all again and again. Maybe what I can learn is a rule that by looking at how maybe the inputs relate to each other, mm-hmm. even if the individual distribution of the of the labels and the images change, maybe the, the, the underlying relationship between labels and images that I need to learn is something that I can leverage by exploring more and more data. So this is a once you start setting up problems using this formulation, you end up with a task where you have to learn how how to relate different things, right? Different objects. And so this is a terrain where it's very natural to look at our models. So so we have a, a recent paper that is currently under review where we think about the what's called a few shot learning problem using this model, using a graph neural network. And so what is interesting is that somehow it generalizes and it, it includes as particular cases some of the models that people have been using and developing in the in the recent year or so to attack this problem. And so so this is just to say that there are many, many tasks that you could imagine across AI and across sciences. The underlying thing that you need to learn is how to relate objects to each mm-hmm. other. And so once you, once you have to do this relational task, then the, a natural data structure for that is a graph mm-hmm. or just a point cloud. So I, I expect that they will, we'll see more and more applications of this technology in the near future. So one of the things that this conversation brings to mind is a recent conversation I had, in fact, here at NIPS with Sriram Natarajan, who studies statistical relational AI. Are you familiar with that line of research and how that relates to this? Not really. Okay. You, you should check it out. It's similar thinking. He's also looking at graph-based approaches and applying them to the healthcare domain and other domains. So in the case of the, you know, any of the examples we've talked about, I can, you know, we've already talked about some of the advantages of this approach over traditional approaches. One of them is that in the case of the uh, particle physics work, it's, you know, maybe more intuitive for the physicist because it maps more closely to the tools and the way they're used to thinking about the domain. What are the other advantages of this approach? Are there performance advantages in terms of either computational or model accuracy or things like that? Yes. Yeah, so what I would say that the main advantage is definitely the fact that it's more general. So you can there mm. are problems in which it might be the only, your only choice, right? That there's no there's no Euclidean alternative to do so. Mm-hmm. But I would say that whenever you're, I mean, you could ask the question. Well, if I just forget about the grid structure of an image and just treat it as a graph, mm-hmm. and, I, and I run my model, this model, is it going to do better than the CNN? Right. I would say that the answer is no. Yeah, and that's not really the point, right? It's not really the point. Right. right? So, so I would say that the main strength of, of the model is really to, to respect the invariances that data have. For example, if you are treating a, you know, if you are just observing a, you know, a point cloud, you know that the order in which I give you the point cloud is completely irrelevant, right? So therefore, you're, you're, if you can certify that your model is going to exactly give exactly the same output, independent of how the, the input are permitted, mm-hmm. then you are kind of respecting the, this kind of natural invariant of the data. Okay. So I would say that, that relative to models that are, for example, maybe using sequential networks, like, for example, recurrent neural networks, mm-hmm. here it could be that, that eventually these models based on graphs and sets are going to be more sample efficient and maybe they, they give you better performance precisely because they are a bit more tailored to the data format, mm-hmm. like to the input data format. Mm-hmm. 
Maybe a good example would be applications from the domain of graphics and computer vision, and in particular analysis of deformable 3D shapes. So this is actually, I think it's a good illustration because you can treat such objects in two different ways. You can treat them as Euclidean objects, basically they are things that live in three-dimensional space, right? Mm -hmm. You can apply standard, let's say, convolutional neural networks, maybe on volumetric representations of, of these objects, or you can think of them intrinsically from the perspective of differential geometry, basically model them as manifolds. And what you gain in this way by resorting to these kind of architectures is you gain a deformation invariance. So basically your model is by construction invariant to inelastic deformations of the shape. And if your task, for example, is deformation invariant correspondence or deformation invariant similarity, it means that you, you can deal with way less training examples because you don't need to show to the network all the possible deformations that the shapes can undergo in order to learn these deformations from examples. You basically have this invariance built into the model. And the, the difference can be very dramatic. The difference can be in orders of magnitude, less training samples. Mm. So in other words, the, the approach you're taking to model, because it's, it's more tailored to the, the problem domain, it kind of restricts your search space and you don't have to provide examples for things that wouldn't really exist in the domain itself, but do exist geometrically in, in Euclidean space. Exactly. Or maybe a, be a better way to say it is that you try to model axiomatically as much as possible or as much as makes sense in your specific problem. Mm -hmm. And everything that cannot be modeled axiomatically because, of course, there is a limitation to what you can model basically in, in a hand handcrafted way. Mm -hmm. Everything that deviates from your uh, model, you learn. Mm -hmm. Okay. Are there other topics that you covered in the tutorial that we haven't touched on yet? So just very briefly, so one, one other potential area of application that we, we are currently exploring to what extent, if you now have a language to learn over graph-based structure, you can use it for combinatorial optimization problems that are naturally defined over graphs. So this is a completely different domain of application because there the goal is not so much to solve a task that you don't know how to solve, it's more the, to solve or to approximate the task faster. We're talking like traveling salesmen and yeah. these kinds of graphs. Yes, exactly, exactly. Okay. So, so we briefly touched upon like one of such problems in the tutorial, which is the quadratic assignment problem. But the what? The quadratic assignment quadratic problem, assignment. Which, is a, which contains the travel state. So travel assignment problem is that you can think it as a, as a particular case of, of, the, of that one. So there, the, the general setup is really a, an instance of this trend that you can always have this analogy between an algorithm to solve a task and a neural network. And this analogy works by looking at the algorithm and then unrolling. Typically, the algorithm involves a series of iterative steps, iterations. So you can just see these iterations as the, the, being different layers of a network. And then once you have this analogy, then you can, you can try to study like a trade-off between a computation and accuracy, right? By just replacing the, you know, the, the guarantees that the algorithm gives you by just a data-driven approach where you just, you know, fit the parameters of the network to a, a data set of solved problems. So this is a, an interesting and potentially also useful and, uh, you know, because, because in, in many domains, especially when it comes to combinatorial optimization, there are problems in which it's still an open research area, how to come up with efficient approximations of intractable problems, right? So here, one of the potential uses of what we presented is, well, now we are, giving, we are providing a, a family of, let's say, trainable architectures that can be used to, to guide and to provide good trade-offs between accuracy and complexity for problems such as the travel assignment, mm -hmm. salesman, or other. Interesting. 
Interesting. So to paraphrase that, what you've done is your research is kind of providing a way to express graph-oriented problems in terms of neural networks. Traveling salesmen, you know, map coloring, all these other, you know, combinatorial kind of graph problems, you know, they're typically very difficult to solve exactly. And so there are all kinds of approximations and heuristics, but for a certain level of complexity, those don't work very well. So now your research applied to them gives you a way to solve these using neural networks. Well, yes. Yeah, so, so I, I would not potentially. Say potentially, exactly. <laughs> it's, it's 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 a question mark, and I think it's a question mark that it's worth exploring, right? That, sure. That, that, that because because in in some in some applications, it it could be useful that, for example, to have a you know not just have a single algorithm with a single heuristic, but to have a like a you know like a thing a toggle that you can uh, mm-hmm. select between how much you know how many cycles do you want to spend. Mm-hmm. Versus how much accurate do you want the solution to be, right? And and be able to you know to to learn adaptive trade-offs and and all these all these things are are interesting. Mm-hmm. And then there, there's another declination of this area of research that is a bit more going into the theoretical computer science, namely to what extent the models that we learn could be interpreted as algorithms that we still don't know. This might be it could well be that it doesn't work because it relies on this on this fact that can we interpret or can we uncover what the neural network is learning? And we mm-hmm. know that this is typically a hard thing to do, right? Even for a convolutional neural network, right. we don't really know how the network figures out how to solve the problem. But what I'm saying is that in, in some contexts, it could be interesting to try to understand and analyze kind of things that the network learns. Mm-hmm. So we have these graph problems. There are graph problems in computer science as well. Your research allows us to express those as neural networks if we could then peer into the neural network that might give us some insight into these computer science yes. problems that we're trying to, to model yes. in the first place. Yes. Interesting. Yes. Interesting. Yes. How about implementation? Like I'm, I'm imagining like at this point in time, you can't just do, you know, TensorFlow TF dot, you know, graph solver and do this. How does that work? So to some extent, we are trying to leverage existing tools, not to reinvent the wheel. Basically, the, the underlying framework is a standard one. We use TensorFlow, for example. We just create some custom things that and then boil down again to some standard operations like matrix multiplication. Okay. So basically, the answer, the short answer is yes. It, it, it is that it, easy. It is built on, <laughs> uh, on top of some standard frameworks. Okay. There are some uh, minor but profound, potentially profound differences in the fact that the, I mean, scaling up, like using these models on like large graphs or large domains involves, you know, matrix multiplications with matrices that are large. And so the structure that we have is that these matrices are sparse. Mm-hmm. And so hopefully we are, we see more and more integration of sparse linear algebra into PyTorch and TensorFlow, etc. Mm-hmm. But there's a, there's a fundamental difference, no, that, that maybe the hardware like GPUs, they are excelling at a specific form of operation that it's not very friendly with sparse matrix multiplication. Okay. So, but, but again, I'm, I'm not an expert in like this low-level implementation, but this, I would say, is one of the main differences between you know, running a compnet mm-hmm. or running a graph convolution. Mm. So you've released some code that works under TensorFlow, but it isn't necessarily amenable to scaling up just yet. There's stuff that needs to be figured out. Maybe one way to get a sense for the complexity of this, has anyone like beyond the, you know, the two of you and folks that are like 
deep in this research use this? Are you aware of any like external arm's length applications? So people, uh, different people from different communities try to use, I wouldn't say that it's extremely popular yet, it, mm -hmm. but it, it probably it starts to become. Mm -hmm. So many different domains, many different applications can be, the problems in these domains can be formulated using graphs. Graphs at the end are very right. generic and very convenient representation of any kind of relations or interactions you can think of. So that's really very generic framework of describing certain types of data. So yeah, people that are even not experts in, in machine learning that come from different domains that bring certain applications, they try to, uh, basically they, they see that graphs are allowed to formulate their problems in a natural way, and they are curious to try out these approaches. Okay, great, great. This is really exciting stuff. Where can folks go to learn more about it? Download the TensorFlow code or read some of the papers? So we have a dedicated website that is okay. easy to remember. It's geometricdeeplearning.com. Geometricdeeplearning.com. Awesome. Where, yeah, where I think the idea is to have all the tutorial material. We have the, the review paper that Michael mentioned. We have also the recent literature by not just us, but other groups that use the tools. And then we are also going to have, in two months, we are going to have an IPAM workshop here at Los Angeles, where I think I'm, I'm also looking forward to it because it's what you were saying, that people from different domains mm -hmm. and people from different disciplines will come together and essentially present their data problem or the mm. formulation. And what I'm expecting is that we are going to see more and more this, this realization that actually the models and, and the, the, the tools can be used across more domains than maybe we are expecting. Okay. Awesome. Great. Well, Joan, Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. To follow along with the NIP series, visit twimmelai.com slash NIPS 2017. To enter our Twimmel One Mill contest, visit twimmelai.com slash twimmel1mil. Of course, we'd be delighted to hear from you either via a comment on the show notes page or via a tweet to at twimmelai or at Sam Charrington. Thanks once again to Intel Nirvana for their sponsorship of this series. To learn more about the Intel Nirvana NNP and the other things Intel's been up to in the AI arena, visit intelnirvana.com. As I mentioned a few weeks back, this will be our final series of shows for the year. So take your time and take it all in and get caught up on any of the old pods you've been saving up. Happy holidays and happy new year. See you in 2018. And of course, thanks once again for listening and catch you next time.